you, Chuck. I have the privilege today of reading the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Well, a week ago we were here together and we started this time of a message by looking at a clip from Hoosiers, that best film ever I, I mentioned. <laughs> That's all about that Indiana State basketball tournament in a small school taking down a large school, David and Goliath. I said it was to be a basketball sermon. And so I put up a photo of the mighty Rudy Gobert, the jazz center who I mentioned was taking the NBA by storm this year. Of course, this week, the Jazz have promptly lost four in a row. <laughs> Monday morning this week, uh, John Melhoff, who, as you know, runs our facilities here and does a great job. So he steps into my office with his Jazz ball cap on. This is one of our frequent Jazz kind of talks that we have. So we had a few minutes to kind of think about all that was going on in the world of basketball. And we realized that while we were worshiping, talking of basketball, that this helicopter carrying Kobe Bryant had crashed into this California hillside in the fog. and All those lives were lost, including his little daughter, Gigi. I thought, wow, a basketball sermon indeed. Life is precarious, isn't it? Fraught with so much heartache and sorrow. Even if basketball is really not our thing, not our, our passion, the reality of life and death, it, it comes to all of us at different moments. I confess as the news began to 
spread on Sunday afternoon into Monday, I sort of had an initial judgmental response that I'm not proud of. You know, thinking, well, gosh, you know, if only Kobe and his daughter had gone off to church last Sunday morning and were there instead of, you know, every pastor's worst nightmare is sports, right? Youth sports on Sunday mornings. I fought against it for years. If they weren't going off to, to play a game, ah, what if? But I knew that didn't quite sit right in my heart, that cold, rather callous response. And I thought, well, that's not really Jesus living in me. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so we pray, Lord, create in me a new heart, put a new and, and right spirit within. I continue to watch a lot of the coverage this week. I like basketball. And I love seeing all that footage of young Kobe coming out of high school there in the Philadelphia area, those old clips, you know, just dominating. And then went right into the NBA, 17 years old, and did the same thing there on NBA players. Just had the ability, if he wanted to, to just take over a game anytime. Kept watching some of the, the news, and along about midweek, a story popped up on the internet of how Kobe and his daughter Gigi had got up early last Sunday morning and had gone to Mass, 7 a.m. Mass, had had communion before they got on that helicopter. And I think, oh, oh, life, oh, oh, self, what's the matter with you? How I, I need a word, a word from above, a word to clearly follow and obey, a word that comes not from my own prideful and callous heart, but comes from above. Set your minds on things above, the Apostle Paul wrote. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is. Of course, that word had come down through the centuries. Isaiah heard God saying to him, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So in a way, this seems to be a, a sermon about a sermon. The Sermon on the Mount. This three-chapter, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the spoken word of Jesus, which begins here with this listing almost of a, a new ethic, a, a counterintuitive way of living that comes more from somewhere in the heart, somewhere deeper down. By the end of the sermon, by chapter 7, we're seeing that Jesus concludes this with this little parable, little story where he says, those who hear and obey my word will, lead, will be like a man who builds his house on the rock so that when the storms come, the house will stand firm on the rock. Dale Bruner, in his monumental commentary on Matthew, he wonders why Jesus would, as he says, cease a successful healing ministry to undertake a, 
a seemingly less helpful teaching one. If you read through that first part of Matthew, he, he's healing everybody. But all of a sudden, he stops to give a sermon. So Bruner would say, well, why interrupt action with talk? And then he answers his own question. He says, well, in the, first, the first answer is that Jesus wants to practice preventative medicine, not just curatives, to do public health and not just surgery. Then he goes on and says that Jesus wants to incorporate his followers into his healing ministry and ethic. He apparently believes that when disciples believe, obey, and teach his sermon, they become this sick world's major antibodies and antidotes. I like that. Sermons apparently are important to us. They are antibodies. They are antidotes. Consider this then the sermon on the Mount Olympus. Yeah, I made that up. <laughs> yeah, I, I came after years at a church, uh, Mount Vernon Presbyterian Church in the Northwest, and so, you know, being here with you, I, I have to catch myself constantly not to say Mount Vernon Presbyterian Church. I said it for so many years. So, Mount Olympus. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the sermon. Perhaps, like all sermons, we are not quite sure what to do with. Although we may conclude that we know that we need these words. These words, they're different than our words. These words, they, they come at us like an antidote. An antidote to our own variant and self-enlarged, sometimes callous thoughts. One theologian says that he is struck by their poetic beauty and overwhelmed by their impractic practicability in our world. <laughs> so, Jesus, seeing the crowds, he went up a mountain and he sat down, which was the, the rabbinic thing to do. Rabbis sat as they taught. So he goes up the mountain to sit down and his disciples come to him and he began to teach them. Church, right? a sermon. He gives the word, blessings on the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Really? That's how you're going to start a sermon? How about a clip from Hoosiers? Come on. <laughs> blessings on the poor in spirit? And he goes on, blessed are the meek, because they will inherit the earth. And, you know, come on, Jesus. Let's get real. That's not how it works out here. The Beatitudes, from the very start, they just did not fit the real world. Reinhold Niebuhr, the theologian, called these Beatitudes an impossible possibility. Bible scholars through the years, they constantly talk about you know, the right translation for these, the series, these eight Beatitudes. The, the Greek word, makarioi, and they, they go back and forth. Some think the best translation is blessed. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. But in some ways, that perhaps is too soft, uh, a little mushy, sentimental. 
And so some of think it carries more of the meanings like Jim brought to us today of congratulations. <laughs> but that seems a little strange too. Congratulating those, as Jim pointed out, that are, are poor in spirit. Or you know, Luke's gospel doesn't have the in spirit part. It's just blessed are the poor. Much more of a social aspect to it. Congratulations. Some have thought, well, maybe it should be happy are those. But that seems a bit trite. Not quite deep enough or profound enough. Bruner would say that it's good news to tell the, is, or ask, is it good news to tell the poor and the miserable that they are in fact happy? <laughs> so the word is in flux. It's, it's, uh, it's heavier, it's deeper, it's more robust for us. Happiness, yes, but more than that, a, a contentment, a, a satisfaction, a, a way of finding life of significance. It points to a growth or a movement beyond ourselves, something we couldn't come up with on our own. That's where God seems to be leading us into a greater reality. Kurt Vonnegut, uh, maybe some of you read him growing up, the author. He once said if you want to discover the meaning and the potential of human life, you might start with Jesus' words here. But then he goes on says, the one about the meek inheriting the earth, best idea anyone ever had. He observed that vocal Christians, often with tears in their eyes, demand that the Ten Commandments be posted on public buildings. Then he says, I haven't heard of anybody demand that Beatitudes be posted anywhere. <laughs> These are radically subversive kind of statements. They turn, turn things upside down. They turn them around from how we ordinarily think of. They challenge us and they run right at our values and our ethical structures in which we live. We don't get ahead in this world by being poor in spirit or poor in anything. Most of us are going to go home and start watching some of the, the pregame stuff, right? Get our guacamole ready. Right? And along about later in the afternoon, we're going to sit down. going to watch the Chiefs, the 49ers. But maybe we're going to watch the commercials most of all, right? The truth is, as funny as they are, no one commercial that you're going to see today is going to encourage you to consume less. Not a one of them is going to ask us to reduce our sense of self-importance or to be hungry for anything except Doritos. The meek, they don't get anywhere in this world. The aggressive do. So the Super Bowl, it comes at us not as a celebration of gentleness or smallness or meekness or purity. But Jesus does. This is a series of, of blessings that are typically divided into two sections. The first four, blessings on the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then the second tier, blessings on the merciful, the pure in heart, 
peacemakers and those who are persecuted because they are living for God. So the first section seems to be a reshaping of our internal life, while the second section is more about how that internal life is lived out and the consequences of that. Or maybe another way to think of all this is the first part is to show us true grace, true mercy, deep love in the broken places of our lives. While the second part is to show us how much God values and desires for us to be centered on and to live out that love which we have received. And so it's about mercy and purity, integrity, peace, and conviction. To me, it seems like they are a, a, a promise of an examination of self. First, the sometimes depleted self, the broken-hearted self, or the reduced and unfinished self. But then the vulnerable, caring, heartful, helping self. Really curious, I think, that Jesus goes up a mountain. This soon after he had been baptized in the Jordan, then gone out into the desert to be tested. Because Moses had one time come out of Egypt and, and gone through the waters of the Red Sea, out into the wilderness where he was tested and the people were tested, and then came across the Jordan River, but not before he had gone up a mountain himself and brought down the Word of God and the Ten Commandments. And so, is Jesus then giving us a new decalogue or a, a new word from God on how we are to live our lives? What our self is to be about? The one who himself baptized in the waters, tested in the wilderness, and goes up a mountain to bring down a word to his people. That we might live from above by the word of God. When I was in seminary, students were really flocking over to Harvard in uh, Cambridge. Even student, It was an open lecture give, given by Henry Nouwen every Thursday afternoon. And so some of us would often go over there just to, to sit in that room, and it was standing room only, and we'd listen to this brilliant teacher had taught at Harvard, taught at Yale, spoke five different languages, <laughs> wrote this... Uh, Probably his most famous book, The Wounded Healer. Maybe some of you have read that. But in the mid-80s, at the very height of his career, Nowen wrote this. He said, after 25 years of priesthood, I found myself praying poorly, living somewhat isolated from other people, and very much preoccupied with burning issues. I woke up one day with the realization that I was living in a very dark place, and that the term burnout was a convenient psychological translation for a spiritual death. He went to France at that point and moved into one of Jean Vanier's communities, uh, the, the Larch communities. And he came back from France and moved to a community in Toronto called Daybreak, where he served as an assistant to those uh, developmentally disabled people, people that really couldn't care for themselves. Uh, this renowned scholar, Henry Nouwen, becomes a, an assistant. 
the kids that could not care for themselves. Yet to the world, it, it just seemed like such a waste. This Ivy League scholar, author. But now, and he spoke about how it reshaped his life and his sense of self. He said that people with handicaps teach me that being is more important than doing, that the heart is more important than the mind, and caring together is better than caring alone. I have been increasingly aware that true healing mostly takes place through the sharing of weakness and the sharing of my weakness with others. The real depths of my human brokenness and weakness and sinfulness started to reveal itself to me not as a source of despair, but as a source of hope. I thought it interesting as you read about his life, uh, that when he died in, in 1996, he'd made plans to be buried uh, beside his friends in a, a plot there in Ontario, uh, next to Bill and Carol, Rosie and Peter. They had been people that he had cared for in this community at daybreak. And it just strikes me that Jesus in us does this to us. He reshapes our self. He recenters us and gives us a new sense of self. It's the impossible possibility. One New Testament scholar believes that this word that we're thinking about today, this Greek word, makarioi, blessing, that becomes beatus in Latin when it's translated, so then becomes in English beatitude, is best translated actually as wonderful news, beautiful news. That's the gospel. That's the good news when it, it takes root within us. It, it does shape our sense of self. It takes our weakness and our place of brokenness, and those then become places where God meets us and introduces us to our true self. They become not a source of despair, as Nowen said, but a source of hope. Remember what Paul writes to the Philippians when it comes to thinking about who Jesus is in our lives? He says, now, have the same mind in you that was in Jesus our Lord, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, humbling himself to, unto death, even death on a cross. A different kind of self. Augustine would famously pray, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I might know thee. It's when we really know our true self that we begin to know who God really is and how counter that is to how I can often look upon my own life. To think I could know God in the depths, in the, in the poorness, in the mourningness, the, the sorrow of, of life. It's wonderful news. Augustine's prayer and Jesus' sermon, his word, calls us to know ourselves, to be present to our true self, the self that's so often hidden away. 
one of my friends in seminary went on to do very well, <laughs> wrote books. Uh, Pete Cesaro, he, he wrote uh, a, a number of books, but one that I really like is Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And it's got a chapter in that book on this very thought and kind of helps us distinguish kind of our, our, our true self from our false self. And so Pete writes these words. He says, the vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. We unconsciously live someone else's life or at least someone else's expectations for us. And this does violence to ourselves, our relationship with God and ultimately with others. Jesus comes down from the mountain with this word. It says that that's not the design for us to miss our lives. No, the Beatitudes are, are wonderful news because it's there that Jesus calls us to, as one writer put it, to come to, the, uh, to rest in the quiet center of ourselves. And thus then to be present for our lives and to, to discover that this is how God is known. Jesus didn't want us to miss our lives. And so he told them and tells us what real life looks like. He went up a mountain. He sat down and taught them. A sermon was needed. A, a word was, was needed. He wants us to know the truth. He didn't want us to sell out for half-truths no matter how immediately attractive they may be. So he gives wonderful news. He didn't want them to waste their one and only life. And so he said to them, and to us, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God. You're blessed when you feel lost. You feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourself proud owners of everything that can be bought, can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever have. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourself cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. And you're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. And you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution where well, the persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. It's an impossible possibility, but yet wonderful news, that Jesus does not want us to miss our lives, our true self. He desires for us to live from above where Christ is. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for a sermon from the Mount. A sermon that comes all the way down to reach us in our very lives. 
Lord, we know that we need you. We know these, these words are what is to be valued. Help us to reverse our ethic when the ethic of this world grows strong within us. Replace our hard and callous hearts with a heart that is set above where Christ is. We pray in his name. Amen.